0: So several years ago, uh, the 49ers, uh, their coach and the team had this little mantra they would do. It became something kind of fun in my house uh, with, with Calvin. But uh, the coach would get the team together and have his little blurb with them in the locker room before the game at halftime. And then he would simply say, who's got it better than us? And then they would just yell, nobody. And it was just this this fun moment between Coach Harbaugh, who's been in the news for a lot of other things. Uh, more recently at Michigan. Uh, but back then, anyway, as a Niners coach, it was just fun for him to say, who's got it better than us? Nobody. And and on it would go. Keep that in mind, this little phrase, who's got it better than us? Nobody, for a moment. We'll, we'll circle back to that in in a moment. Today in Romans, we come to a relatively short paragraph in chapter 2. Um, Starting next week, we'll take a little break from Romans. You can keep your Romans journals, you know, nearby. Uh, and we'll do some Christmas things for several weeks. And then in January, we will pick up Romans. Uh, but today, one more time, Romans chapter 2. But before we get there, I do want to sound like a broken record. Those of you that know what a record is, uh, some of us do. And uh, broken records kind of repeat and repeat. That little scratch makes it just repeat. Because we have to remind ourselves of what we've been trying to cover every Sunday in the beginning. So here's an outline so far of Romans. The Apostle Paul gives an introduction and covers his, a greeting, a Thanksgiving section, and then... The theme of Romans, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed, Paul writes, of the gospel. That that announcement, we sang about it just a moment ago. That that, that announcement of good tidings. This event has happened. And of course, in that context of the Christmas song, it's this announcement that a baby, a king has been born. But the gospel, the the, the words that mean good, what? news. News. Not good advice. It means good, not good advice. Good, good. It's news, it's announcement of something that's happened. This baby born lived a life and lived a perfect life, a life we can't live. And this baby that was born and who lived a perfect life would eventually go to the cross to to pay the penalty for our sin because we can't live the perfect life. And on on the cross, Jesus would, would... Take the punishment that we ought to take. He would die the death we deserve to die in our place. And and, and then he would be buried, but it's not over. That, that announcement is that he rose on the third day, proving everything that he had done and said, his person, his work, all of those things. That That is the good news that the apostle is writing about. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not embarrassed by it, because that news is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, who trusts in it. To the Jew first, there's a priority. We keep hearing Paul say this in Romans, a priority to the Jews because Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. So there is a priority in that sense, but it's to the Gentiles, the Greeks. For in that gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so this gospel announcement is shorthand, we can say, for the essential Christian message. It's the heart of Christianity. And J.D. Greer, again, we've looked at this quote, kind of summarizes the Romans' message of that gospel announcement by saying, God, in an act of grace, sent his son to earth as a man so that through his life, his death, his resurrection, could, in fact, rescue us, reign as king, and lead us into the eternal full life that we were created to enjoy. It's a great paragraph summary sentence of this gospel message. That righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel, um, again, speaks of God righteously righteousing the unrighteous. So John Stott said that. And that's what these words mean, and we're going to see them a little bit today, and we'll continue to see them in Romans. Unrighteousness, that speaks of sin. Um, righteousness, justified, all these things. And they, they, these words, righteous and justified, they, they share the same idea. And that's what God is doing. He's the righteous one, we're the unrighteous. And in the gospel, through Jesus, we, the unrighteous, become righteous, because God the righteous He righteouses, that's another way of saying He justifies, He declares us righteous. And we'll especially see that in several weeks when we get to Romans 3. But after that announcement, the theme of the letter, then now number two in the outline of Romans, we come to the universal need for God's righteousness. Righteousness. This universal need for God to righteously righteous the unrighteous. It's universal. It's not just the Gentiles. And we looked at that in 1, 18 to 32, a few weeks ago. Um, Paul says, yeah, that the Gentile world, the Greeks, the, they, they, they are definitely unrighteous. And, and he kind of directs his attention to the way they live and especially the idolatry, the, the suppression of truth, the exchanging of truth and the exchanging of God for idols and lies, and, and that suppression of truth, trying to push it down, hold it back. Uh, and, and Paul says, and all the Jews reading and hearing Romans would be nodding, yes, 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 very unrighteous, these, these Gentiles. But it's a universal need. It's not just the Gentiles. And so, for our Bibles, chapter 2 begins then with this, truth that it's the Jews also who are unrighteous. And so last week, if you were here, we began chapter 2. Paul changes his rhetorical means of communication, uh, and he he argues with an imaginary uh, figure who's meant to represent um, a Jewish person. Because again, in his argument, the, the Jews would have said, oh yeah, the, the Gentiles, they're unrighteous, those people. But then he says, oh, but you, oh man, who are you who... Who judge, and yet you do these same things. And so he does this diatribe, it's called, this argument, uh, this style of communicating. And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he basically points out pretty clearly that Jews are also unrighteous. And then he does this, again, scholastic type structure of it's called a chiasm where he communicates um to the center of a point and then back out again this truth that it's universal uh, the need for righteousness it's not just gentiles it's not jews uh, but it's it's for everyone everyone needs this righteousness of god to be uh, received it's got to be received it can't be earned by being a jew it can't be earned by good works none of it none of that stuff happens So he's begun to not only indict the Gentiles, the Greeks, but now in chapter 2, he's indicting the Jews as well. And in the short paragraph we come to today, he's continuing that argument. And it's going to really set the stage for a further discussion, which again, we'll pick up in the new year. What's new today, and we're only looking at, again, a few verses, um, the topic of the law is, is going to come up. And specifically by law, um, Paul probably has in mind the Torah, the, the commandments of what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that, that section uh, given to God's people of what it looked like to live uh, in, in God's economy, the, the law, the Torah. Okay, now back to Jim Harbaugh, back to the mantra who's got it better than us? See, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul is expecting the Jews to be thinking, yeah, but who's got it better than us, Apostle Paul, right? We're the Jews after all. Nobody's got it better than us, Apostle Paul. And really, that's what Paul wants to say. Actually, you're wrong. See, they would have started to think, and, and what Paul does now in Romans 2, he brings up the law, because that would have been one of their arguments. Who's got it better than us? Where are the people of the book, Right? We were given the book, the, the law, we, we were given this, this writing that 's one reason we 've got it better than others, Paul said Paul, but then secondly, and, and we won 't see this today, um, they were given circumcision, this this sign of, of what it meant to be in the covenant and be part of the covenant people. That would have been another thing for them as we 've got it better than, than everyone else and Paul wants to say, no don't don 't think like that don't think that you 've got it better. That anyone, because of being a people of the book, the law, because you have this this circumcision, we're all unrighteous. Everyone, it's universal. And Paul's gonna, again, presume that question that they're thinking and begin to uh, directly respond to it. He intends to show here that having the law, having Torah, as good as it is, and there's a benefit to it, no doubt, and yet... Having it doesn't give them any advantage in being righteous. And we, we need to hear that too. Um, as, as church people, as, as people that um, gather on Sundays, as people that, you know, sing songs and, and listen to Christian radio and, and read Christian books, we don't have it better than anyone because we have that stuff. I mean, those things are good, but those things don't make us righteous. Going to church, reading our Bibles, buying Christian books, listening to—you know—we've we, got a, a, a new to us used car in the last month, and it's got um, a free subscription for three months to Sirius XM, just because we can listen to all the Christian satellite radio. It's good, but it doesn't give us something else just because we have it, and so on. We're we're not automatically exempt from God's righteousness, and therefore God's judgment on unrighteousness, and that. Is the same for the Jews. Just because they have the law, they are not automatically exempt. So let's consider this this short paragraph, chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. Having the law doesn't automatically make someone righteous. I'll read Romans 2, verses 12 to 16. They do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So again, Paul, building an argument, building a case and he began in verse one to indict his kinsmen his people it's not just the unrighteous the sinful gentile world but it's it's his people it's the jews it's this again um, singular man this this made-up character that he begins to can, uh, uh, create this argument against who think they're righteous and think because they don't live this wickedly that that they're guaranteed something. And so he's building an argument, building a case. And now, as he has moved into this paragraph, actually look back up at verse 11. I want you to see this, whether you're using your journals or your Bibles. Uh, And actually, um, look at verse 6, because you might remember uh, verse 6 last week. It's that, uh, the, the A, remember the chiastic thing goes A, B, C, and then in this case, C prime, and that's the middle, the point, and then it kind of back goes backwards, uh, B prime, and then an A prime. So verse six and 11 are the A and A prime. So verse six says that God will render to each one according to his or her works, and then verse 11 says that again in a different way, For God shows no partiality. There's no favoritism. God will render. God will judge. And now I want you to notice verse 12, 13, and 14. The the little three-letter word. Don't have to look for four-letter words. Just look for three-letter word that begins each of those verses. Four, four, four. See what Paul's doing? He's building an argument, continuing his argument. God shows no partiality. He's going to render to everyone according to their works. And and as we did say last week, and we need to say it again, in one sense, not not in the sense that we are saved by our works, Okay, and it sounds like that's what Paul's saying, but he's not contradicting what he's written. He's he's showing and saying that someone who has been uh, righteous Right? By God, the righteous one who righteous is the unrighteous, someone who's been justified, that they will show over the course of their life that their works are the fruit of a conversion, a fruit, the fruit of someone who has been born again, who's been saved, who's been rescued, all of those things. So works matter, not, not to earn us God's approval, but as the fruit of God's approval. But again, he's anticipating the argument, and so he says, four. Hey, let me four, and let me just build, build this argument, what one commentator helpfully calls like a stair step. Four, and then we're gonna keep going four, and then we're gonna go up one more time, four, and and build this argument. So again, a short paragraph introducing the law, but having the law doesn't make one righteous. So, stair step number one. The question then, if, if God shows no partiality, verse 11, if he will render to each one according to his or her works, verse 6, if that's true, then the question that is in their minds is this. Well, How will God impartially judge each person? How, how does that come about? How does God do that, Jew and Gentile, according to what they have done? And so here's the answer first step in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And uh, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, if the question is, how does God judge impartially every person, Jew and Gentile? Answer, Gentiles who have sinned apart from the law, they don't have Torah, they'll perish apart from Torah. And Jews who sinned Under Torah, under the law, they'll be judged by Torah. For all who have sinned, he says. That is, and this is again, is so important. I was talking with someone recently, a Christian, but you know, the word sin, not just something people talk about at lunch and at coffee and you know, at work. Sin. It's such a church word. It's such a, foreign word to a lot of people. What what does it mean to sin? It means to act contrary to the will of God, contrary to the law of God, to engage in wrongdoing. So someone that, you know, doesn't go to church, isn't a Christian who doesn't think of sin, that probably in the context of a conversation, could, could acknowledge wrongdoing, right? Um, doing wrongs, even if they don't acknowledge God, maybe they, they might recognize this body of the way they think they ought to live and how they, they can't even live up to their own ideas of how a person should live and, and how that's wrongdoing. But ultimately, all wrongdoing is, is sin. It's, it's living contrary to the will of God. And, and Paul's already said earlier in Romans 1 that one of the things people do is is suppress truth. There's a sense, and we're going to see it in this paragraph today, even inside uh, the conscience that this right and wrong, this this understanding that certain things are just wrong. Certain things are wrong. Certain things are right. And, And where does that come from except God's put that in us? So how does God judge impartially? Because Gentiles who sin apart from the law—they don't have it—well, they'll be judged without the law. And, and Jews who sin under the law—that is, those who who are under it or in its sphere—right, they'll be judged under it or or by it. And so again, Paul's saying in the first part to perish. And he says in the second part, judge, it's, it's the same thing. How does God do this impartially? Because he just says, look, if you've got the law, that's, you're going to be judged under having the law because you've sinned. You, you don't do it. And Gentile, you that don't live under the law, well, you're going to perish too because there's this thing inside. You, you know, right and wrong. There's an awareness that you, you aren't living right. Well, that's going to lead them to now the next step because he's going to anticipate they're they're going to be scratching their head and they're going to say, How can that be? How can that be? So that's the next question and the next step, verse 13. Here's his answer to how this can be. For, see that word? It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And now this is one of those verses that maybe you've got like this internal warning light going off. Wait a minute, that sounds weird. I thought we were justified by God, you know, righteous, his righteousness on the outside being received. It sounds here, doers of the law will be justified. So do we not do the law to be justified? What, what is going on? Okay, how can this be? And so Paul's gonna, again, try to keep building his argument. First off, how can this be? that those under the law are judged under the law, those without the law are judged without the law. Verse 12, his answer in verse 13 is that Jews who have the law, they're not inherently more likely to receive eternal life than Gentiles because having a law is not the issue. It's obeying it. Notice that is the underlying point here. It's not just hearing it and having it, it, it's it's obeying, it's it's doing. But again, that brings up the bigger point of Romans. No one can actually do it. So this is one of those verses on the one hand, and I, I love this, I love one of the commentators in my library um, regarding a couple of the different ways to understand this. He, he just says in one sentence, the arguments for each view, and I'll tell you those in a second, but the arguments for each are so strong, I'm not sure what Paul intended. <laughs> and sometimes I think it's good to acknowledge, um, I mean, we, we can build a case and, and lean a certain way, and, and I think there's a place for that. But I think there's also a time when we also say, sometimes God, and this is hard for us, but, but there can be an, a bit of an ambiguity. And it's not that it's unclear, but, but there's, there's some nuances to things, okay? So, listen. Doers of the law who, he says, it's not hearers of the law who are righteous, but, but doers of the law. Well, let's just grant that for a second. Okay. Maybe Paul is saying, yeah, if you just perfectly obey the law, you'll, you'll be justified. The problem is no one does. And, and that's where he's going to get to again. He's already said it, but he'll get to it in the first part of Romans 3. There is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned. So maybe hypothetically that's true, but the truth is no one does. Okay, so that, that's one kind of way this, this could be understood. I, I think, you know, it's kind of like maybe three days of the week that has some merit. Four days of the week, though, I'm persuaded that again, he's, and look at the, the tense of the, the argument. He says at the end, the doers of the law who will be justified. So doers of the law, which I think we as Christians are called to be, right? If we've been made righteous outside, if we've been justified, now we are to do the law, to obey, and the fruit of, of obedience, one day, in fact, we'll be, we will be justified because we will have done what God has already done in inside us. Notice it doesn't say that justification is based on The doing of the law, it says doers will be justified. See that? That's a slight difference, but it's important. It doesn't say being justified is based on doing. It just simply says doers will be justified. So those who are doing the law, who God has saved, we will be justified. And James, in his book, argues similarly. And again, even though Paul uses this, this word group of righteousness and justification in these big theological ways, we also have to give him and James in the, in the other book room to use these words in slightly different ways. We, we are justified if we are in Christ. We have been declared righteous. We can't lose that. I was talking, again, with the same person I mentioned earlier this week, and he said to me, Paul, can we lose our justification? And I love that question. Because often we'll think of, well, can we lose our salvation? And it was fun to hear him say, can we lose our justification? Well, if justification is this declaration by God, righteous, because of Christ. Remember, verse 16 and 17 in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, this righteousness of who God is, he he declares us, it's a word that comes from the legal court of, of Paul's day, It righteous. Not because of anything a person's done, but because of the work of Jesus, the righteous one, his righteousness imputed or counted in our place. So if God is declaring someone justified, first off, that's not ours to lose. It would be God's to lose, he's the judge. And I don't think God's gonna, be the kind of God who will de- declare someone justified and then, oh, actually, I, I messed up. <laughs> I shouldn't have declared that. Let me take that, that, that declaration away. It doesn't work. It doesn't work logically as we think about who God is, but more importantly, it doesn't work from the teaching of the scripture. Those who are justified will persevere so that they will... Um, as 13, verse 13 says, it's doers of the law, justified Christians, not perfect, but who are who have been justified and who are living this way, they will be. They will be justified. It, it's a done thing. It will happen. It's done in the future. It, it will be. It's, it's still to happen. We can count it, count on it, but it will be. So again, does God justify people based on whether they obey? It sort of sounds like that, but I think... Again, Paul is saying, no, no, Christians united to Christ, those that are able to persevere in good works because of the spirit in us, we, we give the necessary evidence by our obedience on that day, on that judgment day. And again, both options, whether it's this hypothetical, although it doesn't can't happen, can fit, but it seems that again, what, what Paul is saying is that this will be, be true. And again, back to his bigger point, right? There's this whole reality that all have sinned and all will be judged. Um, and we're going to continue to see that here as we move into the next step in, in just a second. But let me remind you of this from last week. Remember I talked last week quoting Tim Keller um, about apples on an apple tree. And I thought about it later last week I know we live in Sonoma County, and, and if, if you're old enough to have lived here, you, you might remember apples and apple trees, but now it's vines and grapes, right? That's, so let's think that way then, because that's what we see more, right? It's not grapes on the vine that prove life. The, the grapes on the vine don't prove life. They, they, they don't provide it, right? They, they, they are there to give evidence that the vine is alive, that the roots are in the soil. Our, our, our obedience, friends, is not, not us doing anything other than showing that there's life, right? So we have to keep the order right. We, we obey because we're called to. We obey, but it's this, this flip-flop of, of the way most people live. Rather than I obey, therefore I'm accepted, in Christianity, in the Gospel, it's I'm accepted; therefore, I obey. And it is a whole different change of, of of process for us. So don't don't forget that. Even even within understanding this, but Paul's not done. He's got one more step because again he's going to anticipate the question: How can this be? They're they're going to be going crazy that this uh, this imaginary a person he's arguing with is going to be going crazy and is going to be asking, well, how can all this be? So he's going to one more time in verse 14 say for, and here's what he says, verses 14, 15, and 16. For when Gentiles, so now, right, he's talking to Jews, but he wants to keep reminding them. So, so even Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have Torah, but when they by nature do what the law requires... And again, he doesn't mean perfectly, never sinning, but right, sometimes when they do things that the law requires, well, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the Torah, even though they weren't given the law, the fact that they, they sometimes do those things shows that there's something internal going on. He says, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their heart. It's inside. While, while their conscience also bears witness, and listen to this: their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Like sometimes they're accused because they, they don't live the way they know inside they're supposed to. There's this this sense of it, or and sometimes they're they're excused by their conscience. All of that, he says, to fruition on, verse 16, the day when, according to my gospel, and he doesn't mean like his, he just means the gospel he's been proclaiming, God judges the secrets of men and women by Christ Jesus. Again, in other words, internally. So again, how can this be? Paul's answer is, there is a sense, even in Gentiles, of of the law. Not Torah law now, but, but right and wrong. Having the law even in their hearts, still renders them guilty. They, they still fail. See, even though they have some sense of doing right and wrong, they don't perfectly live up to it. They, they fall short. They, they break it. Even as the Jews who live under law, Torah law, they fall short and they don't live up to it. And that's all that why God can judge impartially everyone's works because everybody, again, it's universal, falls short. Of, of the law, Torah, of the law in our heart, everyone, everyone is guilty. Everyone falls short. Paul's explaining that Gentiles, even as he's talking to this Jewish, argue, this, this imaginary person here, Gentiles who don't have Torah, they, they still sin. They, they still fall short. And so it's fair for God to judge the evil and the sin and those things that reside within. And other consciences attest to and bear witness against, and all of those sorts of things. On the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Or as he says in 2 Corinthians 5:10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done. So we have to learn to be okay with the fact that we are we have to do works not to earn but because it, we've been saved and justified so works need to be there the fruit needs to be there to show that there's life and and god will look at our works do these works fit with a person who's abiding in the vine the life is flowing not not life that a person earned but a life that christ earned and was imputed and now there's the fruit of it. We must all appear one day before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Praise God that if you're in Christ one day, you will say, God, look at what I have done. And what I have done is trusted Christ. What I have done is said, I can't do it. What I've done is said, I I am kneeling before the cross. He, his righteousness, not mine. That's what I'm trusting in. Who's got it better than us? Nobody. Friends, law-keeping, law-obeying, having even now as Christians, God's word. On the one hand, yes, it's a great thing. I mean, right, we have God's self-revelation. We know what it looks like to live in the body, what it looks like to, to live with one another. We, we, we have some amazing things, but having it doesn't in and of itself make us better than anybody, but the truths that we have make it so that we can, we can honestly say, yes, actually, we do have it better. Than, than anybody who's trying on their own law keeping, whether it's the law, whether it's internal, the way I want to live, you know, my truth. We've got it better because we know that there's been only one righteous person and he's lived a life we can't live. And again, let me say it again. This gospel flips the premise, right? We don't practice obedience to be accepted. We practice, we are accepted in Christ and that's why we Obey, And when, when that's the motivation, again, it's, a, it's an obedience out of thankfulness and gratefulness. And so, again, we have this amazing, this amazing gospel. And again, just kind of back up again to the 10,000-foot, 10,000-mile you know, view. This is the point again and again. Uh, it's, it's this gospel that's the power to save. It's this gospel that reveals the righteousness of God and everyone's unrighteous, Gentile and Jew. And what Paul's beginning to do here is continue, or continuing to do, excuse me, is build this indictment that having the law and being hearers who just say, well, I've got the law, that's not what counts. Because in the end, it's, it's doing. And it's for the Christian doing in response to being made, made right with God. So we ought to again say, who's got it better than us? No, nobody, because... As Christians, we too are not embarrassed by this gospel because it's this gospel that's, that's the power of God to save everyone, even me, everyone who believes. And that leads us perfectly today on the first Sunday of the month, not only the first Sunday of Advent, but uh, the first Sunday of uh, the month where we remember the Lord's Supper, where we come to um, this Sacrament or this ordinance, as the church calls it to to remember again and again and again that we are not saved and justified simply by doing but but no this this one who we we remember as our king, right, this one who we remember as our high priest, who 's at the right hand and who 's coming again, he did something for us that, that announcement of what has happened, so let me just remind us. Of communion and some things related to this, this meal, and I'll have those that are going to serve the elements uh, come forward at this time as well. So, in communion, four things to highlight this morning. First, we have remembrance, and it truly is a, a, a remembrance meal. In the Lord's Supper on that night with his friends, closest followers, Jesus told the apostles that they were going to proclaim his death until he returns. And so the bread, the, the cup, the wine, the juice, right, the body, the blood um, in, that's represented in this meal, it, it is just that. It's a remembrance of what Jesus did. And these, these parts indicate that his death was deliberate. It was a deliberate act on his part. He, he gave himself as a sacrifice in our place for the forgiveness of sins. So every time we we come to this meal and celebrate, we remember the meaning of his death. We remember that it was on our behalf. And so Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So that's one truth about communion. Secondly, in communion and in the Lord's Supper, we also celebrate God's presence. It's amazing that we're invited to, to come to the table we're invited to this, this meal, this table, right? And, and, and back in Genesis, think about what Satan said to Eve and to Adam. Here, take this and eat. Take and eat of this fruit. And they did, and they ate against God's command, and the result, it didn't result in them being satisfied and fulfilled. Rather, it resulted in them being driven away from the garden, but the garden represented God's presence, They were driven away from God. But at communion, the Lord himself invites us into his presence. When he said to his disciples and to us, take and eat, it's a reversal of what Satan did in the garden. Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner has this wonderful line. He says, God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. We experience this every time we come to the Lord's table, every time myself or someone else invites us to eat and and to drink. It's a a celebration of uh, his presence and a reunion with God. Number three, the Lord's Supper is communion, fellowship. It's this communion with God. It's a communion with one another. That's why we do it together. That's why our tradition is in a moment, you'll get the element and you wait because then together we'll, we'll eat on my instruction. Together we'll drink on my instruction. We commune, we have fellowship with God by grace, but we not only commune with God, we, we commune with one another. We're united to the Lord Jesus, we're united to others, right? We're the Soma, the body. He's the head, we're the members of the body. So he's telling us uh, in this meal that you have fellowship with God, you have fellowship with one another. Number four, in the Lord's Supper, we have nourishment, spiritual nourishment. It becomes a means of grace. As we consider all these things, there's this supernatural spiritual nourishment that, that happens, And God intends for that to be so that our faith is confirmed, our souls are strengthened as we walk together. But then finally, number five, back to Advent. Uh, In communion, we anticipate anticipate his return, his second Advent, the glory that will come when he he returns. He said, I long to eat this with you one day. And that that promise that he will return and, and have this meal with us one day, we... We look in anticipation backwards, but forwards, even as we do the same here at Advent. So with that, let me read the Apostle Paul's instruction to the church related to this meal. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let me pray, and then the bread will be passed. And again, you hang on to it. Thank you, Lord, for this meal, this this meal that does so many different things. It points us to your coming. It nourishes us. It it points to the fellowship we have with you, with one another. Um, Thank you. Thank you that we remember what was accomplished for us, what what sacrifice, Jesus, you went through for us so that we, the unrighteous, could be righteous. So we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So as the bread is passed, I invite you just to silently uh, commune with God in prayer. Maybe there's some sin you need to confess. Just you quietly talk to God and then on my instruction, we will all eat together.